Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Psalms, Psalm 29. Listen now for a word from God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all say glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Listen again for a word from God. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, "Mm, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him for dead. Now, by chance, a priest who was going down that road was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved to pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he took him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay whatever else you spend. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord.
Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together upon this, your word to us today, what you would have us not only know, but absorb and live by, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. But the lawyer whose job, let's face it, I worked for a law firm. I respected a lot of the lawyers I worked for more than I thought I would before I took that job. The lawyer whose job is to define the limits of liability and wanting to justify himself asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? You say to inherit eternal life, to be with you now and forever, to have this abundant life that you promise. I have to love God with my, all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. The first part I get, the mind, strength, heart, soul part, that's in the Shema, the, Deuteronomy, the, the little verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is in a little scroll on the doorpost of every Jewish person still today. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The lawyer says, I've got that part, I grew up with that, but this neighbor as myself part, that's new, and I need to know who my neighbor is. Where do I draw the line? As people of faith, where are we supposed to draw the line? Where do you draw the line? We draw lines all the time. Let's just go right to the nub. Think about your stance on capital punishment, for example. We draw lines. Who's on this side? Who's on that side? Who's on your side of the lines that you draw or the lines that are drawn for you? Here's what I mean. When I was growing up, my father used to take us camping. He used to drag me around hunting until I was old enough to say no. I wasn't good with guns, but we were often, you know, around the campfire at night. Around the campfire at night, the line is the end of where there is light and warmth, right? You don't go out beyond that because that is dark and scary and there are noises out there. When I was little, my parents drew the line at both ends of our little street, wherever we happened to be living. With my kids, the line was basically, and still is to a certain degree, as long as I can see them. If I can see you, that's the limits of where you should be going. Lines are important. They help us stay safe, stay in a world that is predictable for ourselves, take advantage of opportunities, going to the right school as long as we stay within the lines of the right high school and grades and other extracurricular activities. We are supposed to hang out with the right people. My mother used to say that to us. We would like you to hang out with the right people. And I asked her one day, I said, Mom, what if we're the wrong people, you know? But as parents, we'd like our children, our youngsters, to be around in, in relationships that are positive. Of course we do. So we encourage some and we discourage others gently. We all draw lines. 
I grew up on military bases, Air Force bases, which are very different from other neighborhoods, I can tell you that, but they're all the same. <laughs> no matter where in the world I find a base, I go on there, I feel, ah, I'm home again. Because you know what to expect, but more or less, on an Air Force base, and it is definitely uh, a world around which very firm lines are drawn. When we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Kirtland Air Force Base, during my third, fourth, and fifth grade years, we lived on the very edge of base housing for officers. My father was a helicopter pilot in the Air Force. This time we were on the edge of the base. Normally we weren't. And my father, part because he's a jokester and part because he was serious, told us, you see that fence at the far end of our backyard? On the other side of that fence live the civilians. And you don't want to meet a civilian. They had long hair and sideburns, and they dressed however they wanted to, and I was terrified of civilians, which I think is what he wanted to happen. We all draw lines. Of course, as we go along in life, we course correct. We shift the lines and the boundaries. We move the goalposts, as they say, if we think it's to our advantage. For example, every year around January, the first couple of weeks in January, but not much beyond that, people try to redraw the lines of their lives by making New Year's resolutions, right? They try to go to the gym, they try to start eating more healthily, they try to do all these things that will help them change their life for the better, and it lasts not very long. In this story, the lawyer asks Jesus how he is supposed to define his neighbor. And in that story, we find uh, the definition that comes to him completely transformed from the way we are expecting lines to be drawn. When we join gyms, pretty soon the gym membership goes unused. If we buy a Peloton, anybody purchase a Peloton or, or sort of a facsimile around here? It becomes a very good clothes hanger, usually, right? Um, that savings account that you were going to start squirreling away a little bit of money every paycheck in, pretty soon has more transfers out than transfers in. We keep moving and redefining the lines and the boundaries of our lives. One of my favorite uh, film illustrations of that is the movie, the 1980 movie Airplane, which is a spoof film, if you haven't ever seen it, on the air disaster films, which were very popular throughout the late 1970s. I love Airplane because it's full of lots of silly puns and hilarious jokes, which were perfect for a 17-year-old when it came out and are still perfect for a 17-year-old mind, like I still have, even though the body's a lot older. And there are also, in Airplane, a lot of satirical observations about life, which is really the source of good comedy, such as how firm and solid the lines we're used to drawing are for ourselves. Even if we try to redraw the lines to improve ourselves, it doesn't work like that. So my favorite line-drawing part of the movie Airplane is when Steve McCroskey, the head of the uh, flight controller up in the tower, the head of the flight controller's... uh, a group of flight controllers trying to bring in this endangered airplane played by Lloyd Bridges, Jeff Bridges' father, uh, 
uh, as things get more and more dramatic and stressful as they're trying to get this plane to land <laughs> during all these horrible things that are happening to it outside of the plane and inside the plane, uh, the beleaguered he head of the air traffic control says, Look like I, looks like I picked the wrong day to quit smoking. Then it gets worse and worse, and he says, oh, looks like I picked the wrong day to quit drinking. And then this very distinguished-looking guy later says, looks like I, quit the wrong day to, look, I picked the wrong day to quit am, uh, taking amphetamines. And then finally, his last one, anybody remember it? Sniffing glue, right? He goes, looks like I picked the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. Uh, because, you know, again, he, he wanted to change, but he just couldn't. And he obviously snapped back to his previous behavior. Well, like most societies, including our own, first century Judaism, the setting for our story in Luke today, uh, was ordered and guided by boundaries and lines that are drawn with specific rules about how uh, different people acted within those boundaries and how they interacted across boundaries. Very specific rules about the way Jews interacted with Gentiles, specific rules about the way Jews and Samaritans were supposed to relate or not relate. But the point is that maintaining those boundaries, as it is for an individual, was essential to the well-ordered life of a society. It was a religious obligation in these times to maintain those boundaries. If you lived outside the lines, the lines of morality and religion and culture and ethnicity, not only would you be looked on askance, you probably couldn't have survived. Today, it's less a religious obligation for better, I would say, more than for worse. But it is a, we live within these boundaries because of a cultural obligation, which is internalized and also put upon us by external forces. Few people are willing to cross boundaries and live kind of a more free life outside of the lines that most of the culture wants to draw. Every one of us wants to be accepted Everybody, every one of us wants for ourselves or for our loved ones opportunities for success. And so as subtly as we can, we try to guide ourselves and others within these boundary lines. So as much as 2,000 years ago, today we allow ourselves to be defined by what side of a line we're on. Are there good people like us? And think about all the different we's and us's that there are. Lines which separate people by color, by religion, by political or social views, by behaviors, lifestyles, as they say. And each one of us maintains those lines and reinforces those lines by the choices we make every day of our lives. If you don't believe me, remember the statistic that the most segregated hour of the week in the United States is right now, Sunday morning. Right, people separate by color for the most part in a way that there are a lot of good reasons for it, a lot of reasons that explain it, but it is sad and challenging the way that we sort of group ourselves within boundaries. Who is my neighbor is the question the lawyer asks Jesus after, in the verses before this text this morning, Jesus has made outrageous claims about himself. He says, the Father has given unto me what I now give unto you. No one's ever claimed to be that close to God, to be essentially equal with God. And the lawyer asks a very reasonable question. If you're telling me I should love my neighbor as myself to be with God, tell me who my neighbor 
really is. And of course, instead of a direct answer, Jesus does what he always does. He tells a parable, tells a story. And notice that the, the man, the central character in this story is not defined by his place inside or outside any boundary lines. We aren't given his name or his race or his education, his trade, his religion, his family connections. We don't know anything about his social status. This character, without any defining characteristics, is all we know is that he's traveling down this very steep road from Jerusalem on top of Mount Zion down to a very nearby village at the time of Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip, essentially from here to New York City, to Manhattan. But much different from here, the elevation drops so drastically. At Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet above sea level. Jericho just 15, 16, 17 miles away is 1,400 feet below sea level. So there's a 3,800-foot drop over the course of 17 miles. It's a pretty steep drop, about a three-quarters of a mile distance, uh, straight down. And when you are walking down a steep trail like that, you have to kind of be careful where you're going. You have to go kind of slowly, and therefore, in those days, especially with brigands and highwaymen abounding, you were a sitting duck. And sure enough, this guy is robbed, mugged, beaten, almost to death, and left to die in a ditch on the side of the road. And the point of the parable is this man is defined by nothing except for his desperate need, not by where he fits inside any lines or categories or labels just by the fact that he is a human being who's almost on the very edge of death. And he needs to be, he needs some help. If someone doesn't come by soon and help him, he's not going to make it. Sooner or later, all of us come to that point. Some, some of us have lived that point a few times in our lives. And then take a look at this text really closely. You have this, this interesting phrase, by chance. Luke uses this phrase, by chance. A priest is coming by. By chance, introduces just a faint glimmer of hope for this guy lying there in the ditch. Maybe people will walk by and not even notice him, but by chance, a priest comes by, and as listeners to this story in the first century and today, we expect, we think, this religious person to show religious kind of love and compassion, but no, the priest, the verb is, sees the man and then passes by. Next comes a Levite, another clerical order. The Levites work within the temple in Jerusalem, kind of higher level priests even. Once again, a level of expectation for how someone should act and comport themselves when someone is in need. But once again, this religious person so busy, so full of, you know, has a sermon to write, children's sermon to think of, you know, emails to return, walks right on by. Leaves the man there. He sees the man, the text says, knows the man's in need, knows the situation is critical, but keeps going. And the audience in those days, like today, would expect in this kind of storytelling mode that the third character introduced by the storyteller is going to break the pattern. And we assume, they would assume, that the third character is going to be a hardworking, good, moral Israelite, just a regular Joe or Josephine, right? who's going to come by 
and save the day. And instead, Jesus gives us the last person anybody would expect, a Samaritan, who are by definition, very clearly defined lines, unclean, unacceptable to God and to God's people, and therefore to the universe. They reject Jerusalem as the holy place of worship. They have another spot which they, where they think we should worship God. They are the product of mixed marriages by all kinds of other peoples. They are considered lower than dogs. And this is the person who is the third character in the story, who's going to break the pattern, but already Jesus has pulled the rug out from under us. There are five verbs here. The Samaritan went over, stopped what he was doing, got off his donkey, went over to the wounded man lying in the ditch. He bandaged his wounds. That took some time and some effort. Interrupted his schedule. He poured oil and wine over the wounds to begin the process of healing. He put this injured man, defined only by his need as a human being, on his own donkey, and then this Samaritan brought the man to an inn down the hill in Jericho and pulled out some money, paid the innkeeper to take care of him, and innkeepers in those days were not really high on the sort of you know, customer service hospitality list. They were not often honest. They were a lot more like the innkeeper in Les Miserables than, you know, the Hilton Hotel today. And then the Samaritan said, look, I'll come back, and if you need more money, I'll give you more money. Take care of this guy. This, this, this person, defined by these verbs in the text, is actively showing compassion, actively changing his own course and schedule, redrawing the lines for himself and for the man lying in the ditch. Our Alan Culpepper, a Lucan scholar, scholar of the Gospel of Luke, says that by depicting the Samaritan as a hero of this story in his answer to the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor, Jesus demolishes all boundary expectations. The boundary expectations that up until that point had defined society and the world order and let people live and function. Jesus demolishes all these boundary lines because here social position Moral behavior, tradition, religion, ethical behavior, good standing, even common sense, they all count for nothing. None of it matters. All that matters is one human being had a need and the other human being showed God's compassion and love for him. Think about it. The man who is lying in the ditch, he doesn't care who helps him. He doesn't care what religion he is, what color skin it is. It doesn't matter. Anyone who shows him God's compassion is his neighbor. So Jesus here in this story today isn't just challenging the lines that we draw so that we can stay on the good side and others can make their own choices and go on the other side. He invalidates those lines in this text. This is a radical reorienting of a whole world. Jesus exposes the assumptions we make about each other and ourselves, the lines we draw, and the way we like to operate inside certain lines. He exposes all of that as empty of abundant life, of God's intention for our lives. He shows us a glimpse of a world of God's kingdom, a society where there is no us and them, 
a world without lines or distinctions, discrimination, hatred, no boundaries, just where there are two rules, and that's it in this world, to love your God with everything you've got, because God is sovereign over your whole life, not just your Sunday morning life or mine, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors on the other side of those lines the same way we love ourselves. So it's not about drawing lines of good and not good, but simply expressing the love of God that is salvation for us. It's heaven right here on earth. Expressing the love of God, doing those active verbs, going, taking the time, bandaging, pouring, caring for, paying if we have to. Expressing the love of God in small or large ways. And when we do that, we're going to surprise ourselves when we find out that the lines we thought were so strong and thick and firm and permanent between us really are really very meaningless. I love the story that the great CBS newsman Dan Rather tells about himself. He found himself uh, while he was traveling uh, on a speaking tour in an elevator in a large Florida hotel. He'd flown in late the night before and he was, had to get up early to go downstairs and make a speech in front of several thousand people. So he was kind of you know, focused on what he had to do and he was in no mood at this point to be the center of attention or to be distracted by fans or anybody. Uh, but he said on the elevator, he felt, as often he did, all eyes on him. In fact, Rather was even more astounded than usual because every person on the elevator before they got on, they stared at him for a full second, maybe even two seconds before they got on, turned around and took their place in the elevator as they went down to the lobby. Dan Rather thought to himself, didn't any of these people's mothers teach them that the stare is rude? The elevator soon got down to the lobby, and as it emptied, a woman there with him in the elevator as everybody else was getting off kind of gently pulled on Dan Rather's sleeve and said, Mr. Rather, I don't mean to bother you or to intrude. Then she looked around to make sure nobody else could hear. She said, I don't want this to be embarrassing for you, but your fly is open, and a piece of your shirt tail is sticking out the hole. She then smiled and left Dan Rather there, stunned in the elevator by himself to tidy up. We tend to make assumptions and to draw lines, and there's such a wonderful world waiting for us if we just allow God through Jesus Christ, this living embodiment in our lives and our hearts of compassion, of taking the time, making the extra effort, spending the resources even to show God's love. There's this wonderful world waiting for us. Fred Beekner says, the love for equals is a human thing, of friend for friend, brother for brother, sister for sister. It is loving what is loving and lovely. The world smiles for, with a love for equals. The love, Beekner says, for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing, loving those who suffer, for those who suffer are poor, sick, failures, the unlovely, this is compassion, loving the less fortunate, and it touches the heart of the world. And for the white man, the world is always bewildered by these saints who love the more fortunate. And then, Beekner says, there is the love for the enemy, love for the, ones, for the one who does not love you back but mocks, 
threatens, ignores, or even inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer, this, Beekner says, is God's love. It conquers the world. Amen.